Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Good morning. It's Wednesday, September the 18th, 2019. I'm Orla Carmody in for Michael Reed. Coming up on the programme today, the latest on the beef protests, the Gartha restructuring and how it will affect County Louth, Discrimination in our schools on the grounds of non-attendance at extracurricular activities and the success of an anti-dumping measure. But first, the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection has published the controversial report of the Data Protection Commission on the Public Services Card and the legality or otherwise of holding personal information on file. The department has also published a comprehensive response to the findings of the report, as well as related correspondence between it and the DPC. And joining us now to discuss this is Minister for Employment Affairs and Social Protection, Meath TD. Regina Darty. Good morning, uh, Minister Darty. Thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Now, you've taken legal advice which says that the processing of personal data in relation to the Public Services Card does, in fact, have a strong legal basis, whereas the Data Commissioner, Helen Dixon, has taken an opposing view. Now, we must obviously presume she also got legal advice. So where do we go from here? Is the only place now to the courts to resolve this? At the moment, um, we received the report from the Data Protection Commission on the 15th of August, and we took it because it's a very sizable report, as you can see from releasing yesterday. So we took a number of weeks to go through the report. Um, my, my own department, the Department of Public Expenditure and Reform, who are responsible for rolling out across e-government the services that we provide to our citizens. And then obviously we got um, our legal advice from the Attorney General and from um, external counsel. Uh, and having spent a number of weeks looking at the findings, uh, I think we find ourselves in the unfortunate position of having to reject every one of the findings. But because the findings don't have a legal basis, we're kind of in a bit of a limbo at the moment. And so until the Commission issues a legally enforceable notice, we can't do anything. Can I just ask you something on that? Is it not true that the Attorney General had previously said that there was no legal basis to make the card obligatory for other services beyond social welfare? So that had been, we'd heard that before. Is that not the case? That's not the case, no. No, so there was no well, ruling from the Attorney General. It was reported that, that there had been, this had been said in a previous report, I think it was in The Independent. No, I don't think that's correct. And because this, this investigation has been going on for a number of years, Orla, and the, the back and forth between um, the, the Data Protection Commission and our own office has been extensive. Like, I think we've had something like 47 different 
you know, communications back and forth between meetings and reports and draft reports and responses. So, like, it's been a very, very lengthy um, process. And so now you're confident that the Attorney General has said uh, you have a strong legal basis, but that obviously may have to be tested. Yeah, well, as confident as we can be, but, like, I think, you know, not to oversimplify this, um, the Data Protection Commission have a view. We have a different view. The legislation that actually um, gives the powers to the Data Protection Commission's office um, leaves room for people to disagree with their findings, and that's what we're doing. Um, we don't agree with the findings, and we think we have a very strong legal basis to actually carry out the policy that we've been doing for many, many years. Now, it's been um, suggested by Michal Martin and others that you're disrespecting the office of the DPC. He even said you were demonising her. Uh, Catherine Murphy of the Social Democrats said you were goading her. That was very strong language we were hearing uh, in the House yesterday. I have to be honest with you, um, I, that's genuinely not my style. Um, I have huge respect for Helen Dixon, not only as a professional, but also in the role that she holds. But this is just business. This isn't. I, I know some people would like to make this about between me and her, but it absolutely couldn't be further from that. This is just business. She's doing her job. I'm doing my job. Um, and that's literally all it is. And, you know, as I said, it's unfortunate that we don't agree with her findings. But I think the advice that I have from the Attorney General was that if we did carry out any of her instructions, I could potentially be acting illegally uh, on the basis that we have a very strong legal basis to do what we're doing and to not do it would potentially be illegal. But, you know, again, not to oversimplify it. She has a view, her office has a view, our office has a different view. Um, If and when an enforcement notice is issued, obviously we will assess that enforcement notice. But if it's similar to the findings... Um, of the 15th of August report, then we don't agree with them and we'll have no choice. Now, as you say, it's a head-to-head, but it's not personal, but it is a head-to-head clash as such. Do you believe that because, let's say, the whole area of data protection is relatively new, every business in the country is still getting to grips with GDPR and so on, do you think that's part of the problem? Do you think the whole area is just untested? You know, I I don't know. I mean, we've had data protection laws since 2005, and so it's not that new. But what I do know is that people's data is king, and having access to that data, it's hugely important for companies and marketeers in order to be able to, you know, to promote particular products to us. And that's why the security of your data is so, you know, it needs to be carefully scrutinized. Um, And that's the data protection's job, and that's we've entrusted the powers in the legislation of our data laws to that office and to that regulator. But do you believe um, in this instance the Commissioner is perhaps going too far in her interpretation of her responsibilities? I, do, I don't think she's doing anything other than her job. I just believe that her interpretation is different to our interpretation. Now that's a pity, genuinely that's a pity, um, but I think it would be remiss of me and the people in my department, and particularly obviously of, of our solicitors and our Attorney General's uh, office, the advice that I have is incredibly strong. The language in the legislation that was first enacted uh, in 1998 and amended in 2005, 7, 9, 11, 13 uh, and 17 by successive governments. Not, I mean, if this was just me, then maybe I'd question myself and say, right, maybe, I, you know. But this has been successive governments, successive different coloured governments. Um, have sought to just try and make the delivery of public services more efficient for people. I mean, if you remember going back a couple of years ago, if you needed to get a passport, you had to fill out all of these forms in triplicate. If you needed to get a driving licence, you had to do the same, but for a different department. If you wanted a Susie Grant, you had to fill out... You know, you don't have to do any of that anymore. I don't think anyone would would dispute the logic of it. It does seem to be very logic that this information is available. But as you say, people are very protective about their information and and people are seeing this, or many people are seeing this, as a, a form of national identity card by the back door. 
Yeah, well, that's the one thing it absolutely definitely isn't. And I know I've been accused in the last number of years is that if I wanted to sneakily introduce an identity card, you know, then that I was doing a good job of it. I actually don't agree with the national identity card. And I'm one of the few people in in, in Dáil Éireann that probably doesn't. I believe that people's identity, um, uh, you know, is sacred. I don't believe that the police should be able to walk around the street and ask to produce your cards the way they can in other countries. I don't see the need for it. I think we need to trust our citizens. But what this card is about, and not to be smart, like the, the clue is in the card name. It's a public services card and literally all it does is that we store your data set, which we used to do for your public or for your passport or for your driving license or for any other service that you did on an individual or collective basis with the state. We now only hold it once and so we find out who you are, mm. identify and authenticate that you are Orla Carmody and you never have to prove that to us again. And that is again, as I've said, very, very logic but yet there's a very emotive response to this and there has been all kinds of challenges put to it from different uh, sources because uh, people just feel that it is in some way uh, challenging. One of the reasons that obviously it was introduced or the, the potential for it in, in the first instance was to reduce uh, social welfare fraud clearly and yet that was one of the findings of the report, that in fact um, there is no evidence that it will actually uh, reduce fraud in any way. Well, again, deterring and detecting fraud are two different things. And what some of the commentators have uh, focused in on is the fact that we haven't detected, you know, this huge amount of fraud. But what we actually have done is deterred people from committing fraud. And so the way the Safe2 registration operates is that you cannot get two cards under the same name because we'll catch you you can't possibly get two cards whereas beforehand somebody might have been able to apply for a Susie grant pretending that they were somebody else as well as themselves that's no longer possible and to give you a small example when we introduced free travel um, onto the PSE card a number of years ago up until that point um, tens of thousands of people used to be caught by inspectors At the moment, it's now down to hundreds because simply you have your photograph and your data set on the card. And if you get caught, it's it's too easy to get caught now. So people just don't try and take a chance anymore. So deterring and detecting are two very different things. And so for the people who want to just maybe hone in on the detection rates, I think they're missing the point of what we're trying to do is to make sure that nobody can pretend to be Orla Carmody or Regina Doherty because we'll catch you at the outset. So you're absolutely standing over the investment in this and the continuing of the rollout of of, of this card. And you know what? I'm not just doing it off my own back and I'm not just doing it because I have to. A number of years ago, we did a survey. 3.2 million Irish citizens have already volunteered to come in and get the PSE card and to be authenticated under this Safe2 registration process. We did a survey of those people. 96% of the people said that they were either satisfied or fairly satisfied with the process. Nine out of ten people said that it's a really useful card to have so that they don't have to go through the whole palaver of filling out the forms again in triplicate for various people. That survey was conducted in December 2018. I think it was a thousand, uh, a thousand people were the, were the body that you surveyed. But yeah. December 2018, nine months ago, was before a lot of this controversy emerged. Do you think those findings would still stand or would you need to t- check on public sentiment again at this point? I think, you know, it's our job to check on public sentiment on the delivery of public services very frequently. So we did it a couple of years ago. We keep doing it every couple of years because this is a big project. The delivering of services to people in an efficient manner, I think, is a really important thing for us to do. And actually, people tell us that they value the fact that they don't have to do it loads of times. And so they see the merits behind it. Where we're at is a different 
a difference in, in the interpretation of law. And I also must point out, the Data Protection Commission in her, she did a number of interviews, I think, around the time that the report was issued. She also sees the merit in trying to deliver the service. She doesn't have a problem with the policy. She doesn't have a problem with the end result, which is providing better services. Where we have is a difference of opinion on the interpretation of the law. But in the meantime, you have suggested that they breached uh, your right to fair procedures in the letter delivered to uh, Ms Dixon a couple of weeks back. So you said there was a, a, a sort of a failure to have a clear understanding of the import of its own findings. There was internal consistency. So you were, to an extent, or your department were having a go at them. No, again, these are matters of law. And so we have um, we have a legal basis to challenge the rulings, but we also have some difficulties with the process that was engaged in, uh, over the last couple of months. And we challenge that on a legal basis too. But again, these are just matters of law. So at the end of the day, we have an opinion, the Commission have a different opinion, and the only place that I think this could probably be settled, because we have tried, we've tried to attempt to meet the Data Protection Commission over the last couple of months since the release of the report in August, and she's not minded to do so, and that's absolutely fine. So So it's basically see you in court at this point? Well, uh, unless and until we see the enforcement notice, we're going to carry on on the basis of the legislation that was enacted in 1998. So Um, the department, in effect, will continue to operate the public services card and the safe to identity authentication process. All of that will go ahead as normally. Absolutely. But again, to point out that finding one of the eight findings states that the Commission states that the department is entirely legal in its operation um, of carrying out our services in the Department of Employment Affairs and Social Protection um, and has a legal basis to do so. So anybody that's out there that has a PSE card that uses it for the purposes of employment affairs, any of our schemes, uh, any of your passports or your SUSE grants or, can absolutely continue to do so. Anybody that uses it for free travel, it is as authentic as it was yesterday as it will be when you present it. Has there been a slowdown of uptake on it? You had said 3.2 million people are using it, but did that uptake on it slow down because of all of this controversy? I actually was concerned about that. And so we've had stats every single day since the report uh, was announced in, in August, on August the 15th. And actually, Orla, no, there hasn't. And I think that's very comforting that people do see the merits of having it uh, and do see whatever about the difference of, we call it, the technicalities of the legislation. They do appreciate the policy idea behind it and the intent is just to try and improve the delivery of services and they'll continue to get them. So long may that last, if you know what I mean. Okay, well, another item I want to talk to you about which falls within your remit while we have you and that is the reported crackdown on employers who falsely claim that workers are self-employed contractors and I know that causes a loss of an estimated £240 a year to the state in revenue through um, the non-payment of PRSI and so on. How widespread is this problem? I think because the way we were employing our inspectors up until now was only that if you made a complaint for argument's sake, we would investigate that complaint. And so there wasn't any proactivity um, in the investigation. So just we didn't land into an employer's to say, let's have a look at your contracts and books and to see. Um, We were only relying on people to make complaints. And I actually firmly believe the people who were probably made to be self-employed were fearful of making complaints. And so, therefore, the volume of complaints were probably not, you know, relative to the amount of unemployment or self-employment in the country um, from a negative perspective. And so we've changed our inspector role. Uh, we're gearing up to have a, a specialised group of inspectors that are going to be uh, doing unannounced inspections right across a variety of sectors uh, where we feel there probably is a heightened use uh, of bogus self-employed contracts. What and size will this unit or this task, task force or unit of inspectors be and, and, and will they actually have teeth as such? 
Yeah, well, well, first of all, we have over 380 inspectors, all of which have revised training programs over the summer to give them um, more of a, an edge when they're going into our businesses. But we have a, spe- a special crack team, for want of a better word, that's going to probably size be, in, be about 30 in the size of the numbers, who will be proactively going and doing unannounced inspections right across a number of sectors. And I would hope that that will give me a flavour. There has been some disputes over the last number of years since I've been a, the Minister between um, the employment uh, sector between the union sector and between my own department as to the size of the problem that this is. Now I've always said even if it's only a small problem it's still a loss of revenue to me in the, in, in the department to be able to spend in the targeted way that we do looking after the most vulnerable people or to be able to provide people who are in the social insurance fund with the benefits of that fund. So we hear that it's actually problem. quite prevalent in the construction industry and I was wondering why is it particularly so in the construction industry? I mean that's anecdotal but is there any evidence and if so why and and presumably it is where somebody is employed for the duration of a contract on a site for a year or two years but he's been treated as a self-employed person. Yeah, sometimes actually these people are not even employed for a year or two years or they're let go on a week-to-week basis so we have a situation where maybe a bricklayer is being deemed as self-employed, even though he or she arrives on a Monday is told, there's your bricks, there's your cement, there's the wall to build, and you have to have it done by five o'clock. That's not technically self-employment by even any stretch of an imagination. Uh, but there are different types of rules with regard to the revenue commissioners for the construction industry that deem some of these practices allowable because there's different levies taken off them for VAT and for um, for their taxes. But that needs to be investigated, I think, in, um, in a, a constructive way. There are far bigger problems in other industries, in our IT industry, in our um, pharmaceutical industry, in the finance industry, industries where you would have never expected. And some of these people are very, very, very well paid. And so I think, but I think the incidence of remote working and and less of a pattern in hours probably adds to the confusion around who's doing what and why. Maybe I think what we need to do is is that when we start and we're starting, we've already started this month to do our unannounced inspections. I think the picture will become much much clearer than what we've had, which is only anecdotal evidence. Um, and different sides of the argument will argue that it's not really of no proof. Well, very very soon we will have proof. Uh, and hopefully we will have a crackdown and I'll have more money in the social insurance fund to give back to people who are paying their taxes. On on that very note, before we let you go, the new Dáil term has just kicked off. The budget is, is looming in a couple of weeks' time. Age Action Ireland have called for an increase of €9 Euro per week for the elderly. Um, any chance of that coming in the budget? I think, you know what, I wish I could give everybody an increase uh, because I see firsthand the people who are living on single incomes from the department and how difficult it is. Um, this year is going to be a probably unique year insofar as that I also have to prepare um, for the many people that potentially will lose their jobs in a no-deal Brexit. Scenario. So everything so, is going to suffer because of Brexit, really. No, that's well, the, the I, word I, we're I, hearing. I'm going to do my very best to make sure that the people who are most at risk don't suffer. The people who are at risk of losing their jobs will protect them and, and have schemes available for them. It is going to be difficult, but I, I have a particular view of the people who are most at risk in this country and some of them are our elderly, some of them are our children, some of them are people who are living with disabilities. I'm going to do my best to protect all of those people um, with whatever resources that we get from the Department of Finance. All right, uh, Regina Doherty, uh, we'll be hearing more about that in the in the coming weeks, no doubt. Thank you for joining Thanks us uh, this Thanks morning for me on. and we'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. 
Now looking forward to getting those texts and calls from you and that number again is 0861800658 or you can phone us on 1850 and we always look forward to receiving your comments and including them here on the programme. Now a recent Garda restructuring means that call-outs in Louth will be organised from Galway with potential for confusion from call centre controllers unfamiliar with the region and now with the prospect of a no-deal Brexit and the border region coming under the spotlight it seems even more urgent to have absolute clarity. Uh, later this morning, Garda Commissioner Drew Harris is due before the Oireachtas Justice Committee to answer questions on this restructuring and we'll hopefully have more on that later. But joining us now with the latest on this is Ruth O'Connell, our reporter from LMFM, who broke the story during the summer. Uh, good morning, Ruth. Good to have you here with us. Now, Ruth, um, originally the story was, and you, you, as I said, broke it and it has been picked up nationally, that this restructuring was going to really impact on us here on, in County Louth. And we'll come to that in a second. But first of all, what do you think are the kind of questions going to be put to Drew Harris this morning, the Garda Commissioner? I th- Well, f- first of all, a big question and it's not linked to these changes per se is the uh, amount of money that was spent on the US presidential visit here and how that kind of money can be clawed back because there's a huge spend a 12 of, million bill out of, out of the Garda budget and there's that's a hole that needs to be filled and that's one of the issues that will be highlighted today but the other uh, main one will be about the, these divisional changes and the impact they will have at a national level but also at a local level because obviously uh, the members of the committee will be very conscious that their own um, constituents will be affected by these changes. Now obviously this big re- Structuring, it's quite serious because it's changing how the divisions work, how the line of command works, where the superintendents will actually be situated. And at a time when we hear so much about Garda closures, Garda station closures, and a lack of a presence on the beat as such, do you think this will impact in that way? Well, I think there's been a spin trying to sell this that there will be more feet on the ground, but that's not necessarily the case. This is this is top management level changes um, on a, on a regional and a divisional. Um, level and so it's not a case of there being um, extra guards out in patrol cars it's their bosses uh, and coming down the food chain for want of a better description that uh, like for instance uh, local politicians if they want answers about policing in their area at joint policing committee levels uh, up until now you've had chief superintendent and a superintendent of that particular area, covering that area, would attend those meetings and be able to um, listen to the concerns being expressed by the members of the committee and give them feedback and suggest where they'd be moving forward. Those JPCs will continue, meetings will continue to happen, but they will be now attended by inspectors. So the the level of accountability, if you like, is being reduced in terms of the uh, interaction between public representatives. Now, you mentioned that obviously the chief superintendents uh, are very well known in terms of their presence. And as you say, there is access to them by the local politicians. And, and for example, in Meath, we have Chief Fergus Healy and in uh, Louth, it's Christy Mangan, is it? But where are they going? What happens to those people and those jobs? This is the issue. There is absolutely no consultation 
I, I, I've been chasing this for a few months now at this stage and it's been minimal consultation from the Garda Commissioner downwards with his chief superintendents. They, up until very, like up until August, they, they didn't know what was going to happen. They knew there were changes afoot, but they weren't um, being consulted in advance. It's kind of unilateral, these changes. And I think that is part of the problem and why the um, um, uptake and the support is not really there necessarily um, from the chief superintendents or the superintendents because there's been no consultation with them. They've been told it's a fait accompli. I understand the Justice Minister has indicated that as well. Um, and so no, I, to a certain extent, whatever happens today at, at the hearing, um, I don't think there will be any dramatic changes uh, to the outcome. We're still uh, going to have this super border division with uh, Loud, Cavan and um, Monaghan running from Omeath over to Black Lion. Uh, you're still going to have this one with Meath and Westmeath going from Laytown over to Athlone and uh, you're, you're potentially looking at having divisional headquarters not uh, in Drogheda and Navan as they currently are but up in Monaghan Town and um, in Mullingar. And that obviously will restrict in terms of even the knowledge of the police force or the Garda force on the ground to what's going on, geographical issues um, but that you're more concerned about the remoteness of the, the actual superintendent in the chain of command. Well, I mean, I'm not disrespecting a local absolutely, inspector. And, and I'm not putting down who, who, whoever yes. becomes the new uh, chief superintendent of God, it's going to be some mouthful. The Louth Cavan Monaghan division. Um, maybe it'll be rebranded as something else. I don't know. But uh, whoever, that's a huge area that they're going to be in charge of. Whereas at the moment, you have two chief superintendents covering that area and managing day to day policing in in both both. Um, divisions and both um, constituents. So it's the breadth and the size and the scale it of is. the division and the remoteness of it. Now, obviously, there is some talk within this internal restructuring to divide it into hubs. What are these hubs and how will they work? Well, at the moment, you have the chief, you have the superintendent and the superintendent is in charge of his district and looks after the policing in that district and answers to the chief superintendent. These new hubs, they're going to be for community engagement there's um, crime. So there's going to be one, presumably a superintendent will have this because there will be a civilian manager. Um, I think they might be in charge of human resources. But you'll have a superintendent in charge of crime for the whole of that new super super division. Um, and it's that's one person will will be answerable for that. So you have community engagement, crime, performance assurance, which I believe covers audits and compliance, and then business services for the likes of HR. So... It's very much been broken up and what's been done on a local level in each division is now going to be, you know, you could have somebody, I'm not sure where and they'd be based in Cavan, but some, you could have a superintendent in Cavan in charge answering for crime and policing. The kind of restructuring you're describing there is very much a corporate structure. It sounds like there are consultants, maybe expensively paid consultants behind the thinking. That's what I'm hearing as, well, as, as you're from saying. From what it. I understand, the commissioner has been asked what, uh, what, uh, model is this based on and there has not been a, a response there like the people are trying to uh, work out the logic where, where this decision making process is coming from and I think everybody appreciates restructuring uh, of some sort is needed but I think it's the extent that it's happening by and the serious lack of communication with senior guards um, that um, is really the issue here. Uh, a statement from the Guard Commissioner says that at the Oireachtas Committee today 
our new operating model will enhance the investigation of crime through the delivery of a greater range of specialised services in local areas such as the investigation of crime, domestic violence, cybercrime and economic crime etc etc. So they're obviously going to stand over it and defend it and you'll Absolutely. be keeping and, uh, the an likes eye on that for si- The likes of cybercrime and certainly th- that's not happening at a local level now so if that is the case that is progress if you like but it's just the level of crime and policing and um, that um, happening on a local level that people are concerned by. All right, Ruth O'Connell, thank you for joining us on that. Coming up next, Louth TD Declan Brannock will give us his views of the uh, the new Garda divisions. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now, the time is coming up to 10 minutes to 10 and our review of the local papers with Marie Kieran's will we'll take that after the news rather than before. We'll take it just after 10 o'clock if you're interested in all the headlines in the local paper. And joining us now is Louth Finnefall TD. My apologies, Declan Brannock. You're, you're welcome this morning. Now, you were listening there to our reporter, Ruth O'Connell, and her concerns about the uh, the division of the new Garda division. What's your take on all of this? I know you have a lot of specific local concerns around it. Well, firstly, I'd like to compliment Ruth on not just her presentation this morning, but indeed her investigative work in relation to this and being forced to break the news uh, ahead of politicians or indeed uh, departments. I have a very simple view um, on on the issue, and there's no doubt that the jury is out in relation to this report, and Ruth referred to a consultation with the stakeholders to get a resolution to what is the best way forward is key. But I think it's important to and point out... And she said there hadn't really been any consultation, it, she felt. Absolutely. And I think we, the listeners out there and people that I speak with um, want an accountable, principled and effective uh, policing. And that's essential uh, in any properly functioning state. Look, the reality is that over the years, public confidence has been eroded in the Garda Shikana. If we want to talk locally about the rising drugs uh, issue, whether it's gang crime or indeed lawlessness, that's... The it's perverse right across our villages and towns. Well, I think any sense of remoteness, and and Ruth spoke a lot there about access, and I think any sense of an increase in that distance or remoteness would be terribly worrying in this part of the world, specifically because of the crime space we've seen. Yes, but there's no doubt that there is a change required in Angarda Shikana that's needed to ensure that the citizens uh, have a functioning and effective police force, and I don't think uh, the public are satisfied that they're getting that in, in in the modern era. I mean, John F. Kennedy, when he spoke about change, he said, change is the law of life and those who look only at the past and present are certain to miss the future. And that is my view, that we have to look to change. Indeed, this report, Orla, is not something new or radical. In 2015, we did have uh, the Garda inspector report that said changes had to happen. In uh, 2018, but arguing that point for a moment, I mean, I would suggest that the Garda commissioners would argue, and that's probably what's going to happen at the Oireachtas Justice Committee today, uh, the Garda commissioner, Drew Harris, is probably going to argue that change is what it's all about, and they will argue that it's changed for the better, no doubt. Uh, providing that consultation that I'm referring to takes place, I have no doubt that uh, the Association of Garda Inspectors, indeed the Garda Representative Association, indeed the rank and file of Garda, are perturbed about what might happen uh, in terms of the various changes that Ruth has outlined. But ultimately, the public need to have confidence in the Garda Shikana. And, you know, whether you're in, in Black Rock uh, today, where only last week we had eight burglaries, just to bring it down, where the increase in, in, in burglaries, for example, in places like Carling for up 25%, uh, 
indeed over 10,000 households uh, in, in, in the county of Louth have been robbed in the last 10 years. One in five, which is equi- equivalent to the type of burglaries that are happening in Dublin. Uh, you know, we need to be sure that the rank and file guard are satisfied that the chain of command is locally. Uh, I welcome uh, any change providing it is for the better, but it's up to Drew Harris to convince not just the associations that I referred to, but myself or indeed the local public representatives as the voice uh, uh, and the ears of the public that the the methodology that he is entitled to uh, implement uh, as the Garda Commissioner that has the desired effect. effect. I am concerned about lack of confidence by people, erosion of confidence. Is that down to the simple boots on the street idea in terms of a Garda presence? You talked about burglaries yesterday. We in our in our crime report here, we heard of a lot of local burglaries. We heard about the uh, instance of uh, antisocial behaviour on our trains and buses. So, is it that you're talking about the specific lack of a Garda presence? response times from Garda Shikana in terms of when crimes are committed indeed whether you're in a rural or urban setting you need to feel safe in your home and most of the particularly elderly that I speak to don't feel that there's rural isolation and indeed part of the shake up I probably would say there's an urban-rural divide. There's a concern that there would be a greater concentration where uh, the population is in our towns and cities and to the detriment of, of rural communities. And so we've got to get that balance has right. And increased in the Garda. Uh, we know that for the first time yeah. it has it has stepped up. Will we see that beginning to impact on uh, the streets? I, I think we will because... Uh, you know, you could never have enough Garda Shikana. There is a commitment that there be additional thousand on the street. I think it's important for your listeners also to get a feel of what has, uh, what the situation in relation to, for example, Garda stations. There are something of the order of 128 divisional sections in this country. That's going to be reduced to about 28, I think the figure is. And there are a huge number of lay staff that need to be put into these stations uh, to do the day-to-day tasks and get additional Garda out on the street. So now, in I, this restructuring, uh, what was now what was previously 128 divisions is coming down to 28. Something as, I, as I'm stand corrected on, on the exact figure, but, but it's certainly it's coming down. Yes. yes. So uh, the plan would be, and that discommodes people obviously if there's change in work practices or whatever. And I understand that, and that's why consultation must happen with the various Garda organisations, but equally it must happen and I think uh, I mean I already asked Drew Harris to come down and meet the policing committees here in Louth to hear our first hand uh, situation. I mean this county has an inordinate inordinate number of murder and crime investigations going on and that takes huge resources that doesn't allow a lot of these guards to get out on the on the beat. Now you talked about uh, call times and the, the, in some instances the slowness of call times. You have a concern now that the, the control centre for Louth is going to be based in Galway. You have some examples of, of where you've heard that work. Well indeed in more recent times there have been situations where guard uh, in, in the Cooley Peninsula have been called to monitor. Uh, that's to instance one. I think the control centre is a great idea, providing the knowledge, the local knowledge is available. But sending people uh, 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 to, you know, scene of crime or whatever in a district that they're not familiar with certainly doesn't sit well with me. I think local knowledge, uh, anybody will tell you that, uh, whether you're a local councillor or indeed a member of the Garda Shikana, the importance of, of knowing what's going on in the locality. So you've said that you 
heard of an instance where a Garda car was dispatched from Dundalk to Monaghan Town to deal with an accident. And in your statement, you've also said you've heard of Garda cars being sent from Carlingford to deal with incidents in RD. So it's kind of a crisscrossing situation. And do you think that is simply because the control centre operator doesn't know where these places are? Yeah, and there's probably a settling down situation in relation to getting the information. But you can't beat no local knowledge. The beat, you know, you referred to the uh, the beat on the street. Uh, it's the local knowledge that allows people to get to the scene of crime quicker. Uh, the the whole issue for example of guard resources and the need to uh, improve the fleet, uh, the changing technology that's associated with crime, whether it's cyber crime, whether it's uh, the whole issue around uh, how the resources need to be restructured to ensure that we're dealing with modern day crime. That is a call that I would make the resources need to be made available in each and every one of the divisions. Look, there's a major concern here about the reduction uh, and, and obviously uh, opportunities for Gardaí for promotional purposes. I certainly have a concern that particularly in the context of Brexit and particularly in relation to uh, crime in the loud area generally that the, the the headquarters the divisional headquarters needs to be certainly more centrally based we can get into the arguments of whether it be Drogheda Dundalk Monaghan I don't mind once it works effectively Finally then uh, Declan Brannock um, as we said the Oireachtas Justice Committee uh, this morning what will your colleagues on that committee your Fianna Fáil colleagues be asking the Commissioner? Uh, I am sure they will be calling him to account, uh, particularly to consult, uh, and I think the process of consulting with the members of the Oireachtas is, is a starting process this morning, but he has got to listen, he's got to listen to the concerns of each and every county, uh, regardless of what they have to say. Ultimately, the decision in relation to how he operates is his alone, and I think that's recognised, uh, despite the fact that politicians may try to influence that and and that's correct that that should happen because uh, I would have more knowledge I'm quite sure and sure uh, Superintendent Christy Mannion and his team would have an awful lot more knowledge of what's required in Loud uh, than Drew Harris so it's up to him to to make sure that we have the an enhanced and an accountable policing force certainly in this region all right, uh, Declan Brannock, TD, thanks for joining us this morning. Still to come on the programme, discrimination in our schools on the grounds of non-attendance at extracurricular activities and the success of an anti-dumping measure. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now we're coming to our weekly roundup of the local papers with uh, Marie Kearns. Welcome back, Marie. And you're starting with the Drogheda Independent... Yes, I am indeed. I'm actually starting with the Drogheda Independent and the Dundalk Argus because, as most people will be aware, they are sister newspapers and they're leading with the same story today, uh, Orla. It's all about the women. And normally when you see the headline, Ladies' Day, you automatically think of a day at the races, Hats, don't you? Best big, big yes. And races, exactly. yes, but in this case, the Ladies' Day is referring to the successes of of women in the Wee County and of course they are talking about the fabulous win by the Loud the GAA ladies who clinched that All-Ireland glory in the Junior Championships beating Fermanagh uh, 3.13 to 2.6 and then of course the stunning Chelsea Farrell who booked her place into the Miss World Contest Final in London 
in December after winning the coveted Miss Ireland title over the weekend. Chelsea is a student midwife. She's just 19 years old and she's from RD. And what a fantastic opportunity this is for her. And I have to say, I love the picture of the ladies. You can see it there, Orla, because that's on one to page. cherish, it's, isn't it's, it? It's absolutely fabulous. That they it's look back picture. on in years to come. They do indeed. No, it's absolutely fabulous and great to see the, the women doing it for themselves, as, as you say. Yes, yes. And we'll go then to Dundalk, to the Dundalk leader. That's also leading with sport on its front page onto the headline, A Stunning Week for Sport. And it highlights the success of Loud Ladies, Dundalk winning the EA Sports Cup, Eve McChrystal claiming another world title alongside Katie George Dunleavy and Caelan Rafferty lifting the Dundalk Scratch Cup for a third time in four years. So loads of successes there for both men uh, and women. So well done to all. And great to see sports successes, as you say, of all types, because it just it's such a lift and it's such a contrast to Brexit and That's all of right. the other things we're having. It's great to see those. Yeah. And me, the Chronicle, uh, also leading with a sports story, but it's a different, a slightly different way you could say. Ashburn, be proud of where you were from. That's the heading. And this story basically stems from a row over a post from Ashburn Credit Union, which announced that, uh, in quote, Sam was coming home to Dublin again. This obviously sparked criticism from local people who pointed out that it made no mention of the Mead ladies team who were in the intermediate final on Sunday and whose captain and three other players are from Ashburn. The post was slammed by Mead captain Brian Menton who captains Dunmore Ashburn and he felt it was embarrassing and insulting to genuine Mead people. Politicians have also waded in with former GAA County Board Chairman Councillor Connor Tormey saying that there was a lot of ill feeling in the community about the post. He says we have a lot of fun and banter in the community but people are annoyed at the post particularly when they didn't mention the Meath ladies. So there you go and the full just for people listening and I know they would have heard it uh, on, on our own station but the full post was Sam is coming home to Dublin again well done to our very own Dean Rock and team Dean of course grew up in the Ashburn area Area, enjoy the celebrations everyone Ashburn Ireland and remember we like to support all in our community so that's what irked people Well without getting controversial I was wearing blue all weekend because I'm a dub but I understand very much the Ashburn being on the border because you know it is a Dublin commuter town and yet as you say so many people are there they from are, the hinterland because I, I, was, I actually was places. in Ashburn last uh, week doing a Vox Pop in advance of the, the Senior All-Ireland uh, and the amount of Dublin people I came across I couldn't believe actually to be honest with you uh, because it was just a random Vox Pop on the streets the amount of people living in Meath originally from Dublin and their own kids are playing football in Meath so so uh, I did ask one lady who would you support if your son ended up playing for the Royal County she said well I'd have to support him so uh, but people are precious about where they come from and Meath is Meath Orla that's it it is indeed it's not Dublin no <laughs> and when I moved here 20 years ago I live in East Meath and when I moved here 20 years ago it was very funny because my little boys began getting really into the gad Trevor Giles was their big hero at the time the Meath player yes yes and they wore the green and yellow and they are Meath men so there you go it is that's the way life goes doesn't it. That's it. So that's the, the lead story in the Mead Chronicle. So all the, the all the papers, one way or another, are covering are sports sport. on the front page. Well, thank you for that weekly roundabout of the sport, Marie, and uh, keep reading local. The news, really. Keep reading local. <laughs> yes, yes, keep reading yes. local. And keep supporting our local uh, papers because
because they're such a big uh, contribution to, to, to our, our, our community life. And moving on then to comments and texts. Yes, we've had lots about lots of different topics. But first off, just some reaction to your interview at the top of the show with Minister Regina Doherty. Uh, Richie from Tallis says uh, the minister does, doesn't does appear to like anyone to stand in her way. She's thinks she's right and that's it. Is the data commissioner not a government employee? I just feel that this is going to be more money wasted. Where is it going to end up? Richie wonders. And other people think the same uh, in relation to the money. Uh, Liz says, Orla, if this does go to court, how much is it going to cost the taxpayer? Uh, Surely Regina can't be serious when she's mentioning two teams of barristers. That would cost a fortune. But she says herself she got her legal advice. The commissioner got her legal advice. What can you do when legal advice differs except test it? And and I think that's the position we seem to be in. Thomas feels that the minister is not respecting the Data Protection Office. What does that say? Uh, She's contesting every single one of the points doesn't seem to be conceding on any, says Thomas. Well again as she said it's not personal and that's I suppose the view of her department and there's a lot of officials looking at this. So um, I mean it's a a 157 page report I have to admit I read the summary I didn't read the whole report so I I think you'd have to go into the detail really wouldn't you? Seamus says that both he and his wife have the car he doesn't see what all the fuss is about. He says there is more information about people on social media. All you have to give is some basic information like name and address, date of birth and get your photo taken. He thinks that people are, to quote, getting their knickers in a twist <laughs> over something that's not worth getting your knickers in a twist over, to quote James. Well, I like his comment about social media because isn't it true we all voluntarily give up so much informi- information on social media and we don't question But I suppose that's, that's the word voluntarily, voluntarily isn't, isn't it? it? If, if some people decide to give out loads of information on social media, that's their decision. A lot of people don't. Uh, and in this case, people feel that because they need the card to get certain, to avail of certain services, that uh, they are being made to get it when they shouldn't be. That seems to be the feeling coming across from some people. Indeed, as indeed. Seamus says, he has no problem with it. Uh, another list says uh, the minister is suggesting that three million people voluntarily, voluntarily went to get the cards, but he feels that that's misleading because we had to go or we would not have got the pension. So that's the point there. So there's voluntary and there's voluntary, indeed. Uh, Tommy says, uh, uh, the Data Protection Commission are saying that the card can now only be used for welfare purposes, so the passport office should not be requesting it or any other body. That's not fair on people if it's not compulsory, says Tommy. (laughs) So a variety of comments in relation to that. Just moving to crime, if I can, uh, with a listener in touch, Mairead, saying, I'm listening to your reporter uh, on the restructuring of Angarda Siakana. And I think it's crazy that this restructuring is being planned without consultation. Surely there needs to be talking with the people on the ground that the superintendents, the, the chief super, the inspectors and all down the line should be consulted and should each area, and I thought this was an interesting point, should each area not be examined in its own right? Good point. Good point. Indeed. You know, because there's different demands on different areas. Yeah, very good point. And that was one that was brought up by our reporter, Ruth O'Connell, originally, and it was reinforced then by Louth TD, Declan Brannock, because he felt that the consultation was key. And obviously that listener does as well. Um, George also phoned in and George says that with Brexit coming up 
and the possibility of border checks because we don't know what's happening will there be an extra allocation of Gardaí in Louth and you also have to bear in mind that there is the criminal gang feud going on in the county and a lot of Garda resources are going into that and he thinks it's imperative that the chief superintendent remains in Drogheda. So well, it seems to be just, you know, deeply ironic that at a time when so much spotlight is going to come on this region and come on the border because of the, uh, the, the Brexit situation, that at the very same time, this restructuring appears to be taking resources from us. And I think that's the thing we're going to have to look into more and hear more about uh, as this goes on. We'll leave it there, Orla, for the moment. All right. Well, thank you indeed, Marie Cairns, for those comments and keep them coming, please. You know, we, we love to get them. You can uh, text us on, uh, what's my number again? Yes, it's is 086 658 and you can phone us on 1850-715-958 and we'll take a break. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Returning now to the farmers' protests that we've been covering all week and there are cross-party warnings that the issue is now at tipping point. Ainthu leader and Mead West TD Pather Tobin has said he believes the crisis is spiralling out of control and he has said government handling of the issue has been weak and confused and that there's irreparable damage being done to the meat industry and to farmers around the country. And he joins us now on the line. Good morning, Deputy Tobin. Good morning. Now, you're looking to introduce a bill which would ban below-cost selling. Um, I'm not sure if it's the resolution that people are looking for, but it's not one that we've discussed in the last few days. So tell us what, how this would work and is there any precedent? Yeah, so, so first of all, the, the beef market is a dysfunctional market. It's a distorted market. You have a small number of very powerful uh, factories that have enormous power with regards to uh, price and the conditions of sale. And then you have tens of thousands of farmers who are very small and they have no influence over the conditions of sale. Um, so what you see is a supply chain uh, where that, that's very, very profitable. Hundreds of millions of euros are made from the beef industry every year. But th- that money has been made by the supermarkets and the factories, uh, while the farmers are being forced to sell below price. So we have, for example, one of the, 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 the factories made 170 million euros profit last year its tax resident in Luxembourg paid 0.5% tax on that profit and has assets about 3.5 billion euros. And yet that factory expects each farmer to bring their beast to the factory gate at a below cost uh, price. So in fact, our farmers are being forced into poverty, they're being forced into debt, and they're being forced off the land right across the country. And it's clearly, it's as plain as, as the nose in your face that this is wrong, it's unjust, and it's not actually sustainable uh, in the future. Now, I asked you about the bill you're going to, to and we'll sure. come back to that, uh, yeah. the actual splintering of the farmers in terms of how they can represent themselves to actually achieve more. I do want to come back to that. Yeah. But the bill, what, to below-cost selling, how would this work? And as I said, is there a precedent? Yeah, so the bill basically bans the below-cost selling of uh, beef in the Irish uh, beef industry for a, uh, an interim period of time. So, so it basically it, is the base price we keep hearing about. Yeah, it asks Chagask to identify uh, the break-even points um, on which a, a farmer can actually produce beef and then make a profit. And it states that it's illegal to actually purchase that beef below that break-even point. And there is a precedence for this. Uh, we had the, the, the Groceries Order Act uh, a number of years ago, which made it illegal to sell bread and milk in groceries below the break-even uh, break point, below the, 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 cost of, uh, the cost of that actual. 
actual product itself. And would the purpose of this break-even point be that the factories would have to observe this and would, would not be able to offer would, the farmer the, below? The, the, fact, the factories would be fined if they bought product off farmers below the, the understood average break-even point across the country. How could that actually operate, um, Pather Tobin, in the sense that uh, the pricing issue is one that's obviously central to all of this and yet it's the very thing that wasn't on the table during the discussions. So how can we get it on the table as such? The the base price was uh, banned from discussion uh, over the weekend, which is uh, absolutely incredible. Because of competition law. Exactly. But there is an exemption within the beef industry from European competition law. And indeed, there's also exemption from from other markets with regards to base prices. Uh, For example, with regards to alcohol, the government will introduce a a ban on below-cost selling in the alcohol sector uh, very shortly, which is obviously seen to be good for the the physical health and mental health of people uh, to make sure that there's a base price with regards to alcohol. So there's precedence to this. And we also know that if this is introduced for an interim period of time, in our view, the purpose of this is to focus the minds of the factories so that they must start to properly um, negotiate with the farmers to create a functional market. Because we, we, we want to see a situation where the supermarkets make a profit, the factories make a profit, but also the farmers make a profit. We don't want to see a situation where you know tens of thousands of farmers across the country are being pushed into profit. And people need to realise this. By, by engaging in the beef industry currently, farmers on average throughout the states are losing about 5,000 euros a year. So their only income currently is a, the subsidies that they get from the European Union, which on average is now for beef farmers adding up to 10,000 euros. Now that's below what a pension is. So farmers, in many cases, would be better off not producing any beef and just actually going on social welfare. Now, one of the um, one of the solutions you suggested for uh, farmers was producer groups. Uh, yeah. How how would and you said this may be the answer? Why, how so, do you envisage that? Right now, um, individual farmers are dealing with the factories, and as we said earlier, and, and people who study the economics will know that this is uh, called an oligopoly. It's a, it's a distorted type market. So what you want to do is you want to strengthen the negotiation power of farmers. So rather than them interacting with the factories as individuals, when it comes to producers groups, they can actually band together and make sure that their stock, their product, uh, goes through one producer group who then negotiates and represents uh, and farmers. yet the farmers will maintain their right to protest individually. In fact, a lot of the posters we've seen is individual farmers asserting their right to protest individually. And we've also seen, as we discussed earlier this week on the programme, a lot of splintering in terms of the different groups emerging. So they're not really going the route you're suggesting. Well, see, well first of all, there is a producer group being set up by the Beef Plan now, which is which is to be welcomed. and That's, that's a good thing. But with regards to the splintering of farm, farmers, the reason why this, the farmers have been splintered is because the factories are using heavy-handed tactics and they're, uh, they're sending injunctions to individual farmers and to the beef plan. So it's very difficult to create an organised, unified group if there's going to be injunctions made against those groups in the High Court. Uh, because anybody that that's puts their head above the parapet and speaks in a unified fashion for those farmers could end up with a 1.5 million injunction against them. So what, what the, the factories are doing is actually splintering the farmers. And I have great sympathy for farmers because there are many farmers out there at the moment who are in really 
dire uh, economic situations who can't get their, their beef to the factory, who are now going into overdraft because they haven't had any income. Well, I think anybody who was watching the uh, RT News last night would be uh, sympathetic. I mean, there was one elderly farmer almost in tears. There was another um, new Irish national who was uh, speaking about, you know, being laid off and his difficulty yeah. with paying his mortgage. I mean, th- this is not easy for anybody in this particular uh, no. situation. Do you think but the government is being a bit intransigent in this? It's been reported this morning that opposition parties are saying the government has given farmers a go with this or get nothing sort of approach. And obviously we have heard uh, from the ploughing yesterday, Mr Coveney, Mr <coughs> Radker, Mr Creed were insisting that the deal is, is the only one on offer and that failing to agree it is, is what's causing the irreversible damage to the economy. I think that the government have absolutely been disgraceful when it comes to this particular process. First of all, it took weeks, about seven weeks, of protests by farmers at the gates of factories for the government to even wake up that there was a serious crisis here. And even since then, you know, I believe that the government have uh, really low expectations for farmers' rights. I've spoken And is that because of the summer recess? Do you think the eye was just off the ball when this was all going on? I honestly think that um, Fine Gael have an instinctual, laissez-faire attitude. I think that Fine Gael don't like to roll up their sleeves and get stuck into fix issues. I believe that you know, Fine Gael are very close to some of those um, large factories uh, as well. And they have definitely left the farmers to hang out to dry uh, in this whole process. So what, what we're asking for uh, in Aintu is we have a bill that we believe will bring a little bit of justice into the, the beef market, which will rebalance the power between farmers and factories and supermarkets, which will make sure that everybody in the supply chain can actually make a living and a decent, uh, fair profit out of it. So we're calling on Fine Gael TDs and Fianna Fáil TDs and Sinn Féin TDs to back our bill and to support... How, how advanced sure. is your bill? What stage of the drafting is it at? The bill has been submitted to the Bill's office uh, in Leinster House and I hope that the first stage of the bill will happen next week. Uh, and the, the danger in all of this is that the government can can sometimes kill a bill with kindness. So rather than vote against it, they can let it through the early stages and then bury it at committee stage, etc. We don't want that to happen. We want to make sure that this issue is solved and solves for good. Now, uh, before I let you go there, Deputy Padre Tobin, I know you have been a mediator. You've been involved at the very centre of all of this. Um, what is the mood like right at the moment? What are you hearing the farmers say or where is it going to go? Well, I've been working with, with farmers right across the country. And indeed, the um, the farmers at the Dawn Meats factory just outside Slane uh, elected me as their representative in negotiations. And I can tell you that farmers are furious. And even last night, there was another injunction brought against the beef plan uh, by a, a factory. And this is a, an organization that was sitting negotiating with them over the weekend. And three days later, they have an injunction against them uh, to the tune of over a million euros. And it shows extremely bad faith uh, amongst uh, the factories. You suggested tractors might be driven to Dublin. Where did you hear this? Yeah, many people told me that's one of their one of the um, tactics, I suppose, that's going to be used by the uh, farmers if this is not resolved. Is hundreds of tractors uh, driven into Dublin city centre? Because in many ways we We'd have, have to get them up from the ploughing first, obviously. Well, but in many ways we have a government that has M50 vision. They just cannot see beyond the M50 and. Farmers feel right around the country the only way for the government to take real note of this is for them to protest within the M50 in Dublin city centre itself. But Indeed, and uh, hopefully. 
Indeed. And thank you for joining us uh, today, uh, Meath uh, West TD, Pather Tobin, and hopefully with the uh, government and the opposition, indeed, many of them down at the plan wing, they might actually uh, open up their eyes beyond the M50. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now, we'll have more on the uh, meat crisis later on uh, in the programme. But first, to me, the school has defended its policy of rewarding children who take part in extracurricular ceremonies, despite the fact the effect it has on children who feel punished and isolated when they do not take part because of beliefs or other issues. The parent of a child at Yellowfriars National School has made a formal complaint on the basis that, as an atheist, she did not wish her child to take part in religious ceremonies. The mother doesn't wish to be Named to protect her son, but we're joined now by Senator Aethon O'Reardon, Labour Party Education Spokesperson. When you read this report, uh, Senator O'Reardon, what did you think yourself? I suppose it's just the latest in a long line of issues that we have in our education system where the state comes into conflict with religion, and that religion is still, as we have a state, we have an education system that reflects a very, very different Ireland. And as long as we maintain the system as is and don't try and maybe to change it fundamentally, we're going to constantly come up with these issues um, of, of of parental engagement with, with, with religious uh, instruction, of, of boards and management under certain patronage, of children feeling isolated if they're not part of the, of the majority state of the school. I mean, essentially what we have in the Constitution is an acceptance that parents have the right for their children to be educated to, the, to their own faith. That goes back to the 30s where religion was obviously a very important thing in many people's lives, and I know it still is, but I think in a changing Ireland we have a very different view of how education should be done. And I know what's happened in more recent years is that we have a variety of different schools in an area, so... You know, you have an Educate Together school or you have a, a Catholic school or you have one with maybe a, a Church of Ireland detox. But not every community can has that at the moment or will have that because of population reasons or whatever. So you do And are there normally regulations in the school regarding this sort of thing or, or is it just local practice? Is it just some teacher deciding that she's, she's organising the choir for the communion and she needs uh, the children along and she's going to try and put incentives in place to make this happen? Or, or is it organised in, in, the, in the sense of being part of school policy, do you believe? Well, you see, the thing is, the Department of Education does not want to have a hand in the day-to-day runnings of schools. So they leave all these sort of decisions to the Board of Management and the patron body. So the patron or the school has an absolute right to uphold the ethos of the school. And if it's a Catholic school, it does, you know, it, it can do what, what has just been described. Um, the issue that I would have and the Labour Party would have is that maybe we need to totally rethink the relationship between religion and education. Why is religion so influential on the day-to-day you know, um, uh, workings of a school. Why does it have to be so front and centre of, of an admissions policy? I mean, when I was Minister for, of State for Equality, I tried to change the law to make sure that uh, gay teachers or divorced teachers or, or, or teachers who were unmarried parents couldn't be discriminated against uh, by their employer. Now, I could only amend that law. I couldn't delete it because the patron body still has a right to uphold it's uh, it's ethos, which is a bit difficult if you're a gay teacher or, or a divorced teacher, as I've described. So we're always kind of tinkering around the situation. The baptism barrier was another classic example. You tinker around the, the system. I think what we need now, possibly, and what I've suggested, is that the Citizens' Assembly, who's dealt with an awful lot of other constitutional issues, will have a look at the relationship between religion and education in Ireland and possibly uh, propose 
an amendment to the constitution that we would have in the referendum to maybe break that link because we can't keep coming back and back to situations like it's happening in need or situations where, where, where teachers feel as if they are they uh, they can't be themselves. The, the reason I ask you about the uh, the local yeah. autonomy as such, and I wonder indeed, is it uh, confined to a religious issue in the sense that I had a personal experience myself a number of years ago with my own child, where yeah. a similar situation, she couldn't sing in a choir because she was actually going to attend a sporting event. She had qualified for it. And I notified the school she couldn't be there uh, at this communion choir. I'd, I'd know issue on religious grounds because I'm a Catholic myself but when she didn't turn up two or three days later the children who did turn up for the choir were taken to an outing I think it was to to the zoo and she was left behind she was left in another classroom because she hadn't come to the choir so that wasn't a religious thing it was simply just a local management a misdecision in my view a total misdecision and it was punishing and isolating a child who had given notice she couldn't attend to an event yeah. and I was horrified by that at the time I recall so when I read this story it, it struck me that is it a local control issue as much as a religious issue Yeah I, I think it is a, that probably comes down to a local control issue I mean you could have a situation where the kids who play on the basketball team or the kids who play on the football team are all rewarded for their, their efforts during the year and they go to, you know, they have an outing. And you, are we then suggesting that somebody who didn't go or wasn't involved in the football team uh, for whatever reason... Is or who didn't punished. turn up for the final because he had broken his leg, you know, yeah, does he yeah, get punished? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, But I, I think we need a wider conversation. I mean, there there is a huge reluctance. I mean, this, this goes to other issues of, um, you know... Uh, of of cases of, of of students who have been abused in in school and and the state says it wasn't our fault and the church says it wasn't our fault and who actually is the the, the final uh, where does the final responsibility lie so I, I think we we have we have tinkered with the system for so long religion comes up again and again and again and I don't personally understand the reason why we are so obsessed in Ireland with separating children. We separate them on the basis of religion. We separate them on the basis sometimes of income. And we also separate them on the, on the basis of gender. And we have a disproportionate number of schools in Ireland which are, which are all boys or all girls, particularly at primary level. 17% of Irish, of Irish children go to single gender schools. And that, in the European context, is, is really unusual. But that's an overhang from, from a legacy of... And indeed, of, of, talking of, about separation... For whatever reason, uh, talking about separation, um, and particularly where it's a child singled out for some treatment differently, that's what the problem is. It's it's all down to how the child is made to feel because they're made to feel different when we want our children to really respect inclusion and diversity. So this is the point. So uh, look, I, I I don't think we need to go down to a a conversation which makes people who are religious feel as if they are uh, you know being criticised. I mean, it's completely legitimate, obviously, in in a, in a free republic to to you know to uh, to practice religion, to, to, to uh, and that's something that that is absolutely fine with everybody. But I suppose when it comes to a situation where a child feels as if they are being excluded, or feels as if they're being separated, or that we have to you know oversee a situation where the majority of children in this school are of one faith and the majority of children in this school are of other faith, why is why why when it comes to to education and empowerment of children? Does religion play such a huge role in Irish education? I think I think we still have to challenge it. There's, but over ninety percent of uh, of schools at primary level that are under under Catholic uh, uh, Catholic patronage. Uh, that's an overhang of the past. Uh, there, and it does come down, as you, as you quite rightly say, in this instance, 
you know, there are, are many different schools who, who deal with that ethos in a very different way. You can have schools who have a officially a Catholic ethos, but they have... All right, well, hopefully we will see that come up, uh, or yeah. as you say, maybe the Citizens' Assembly is the place to at least have a conversation around it and at least um, take a, it a little bit forward. Indeed. All right, well, Senator Aethon O'Reardon, thank you very much for joining us uh, on that issue today. Now, as I said, we will go back to the uh, meat issue, which is making all the headlines this morning. And as we've heard this morning, the Restaurants Association of Ireland is warning that if the beef protests that factories don't end soon, some restaurants won't have beef to serve customers in the very near future. The, the situation is becoming quite precarious. And joining us now is Adrian Cummins, the Chief Executive of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning. Now, obviously, with the factories closed, layoffs happening, we've been following this with, with great interest here in the programme. It's now beginning to impact right through the food chain. And you think restaurants are going to be uh, in trouble in the next short while? I think uh, that if the supply lines don't, aren't uh, lifted or the blockades aren't, aren't lifted and the supply lines don't get back to 100%, 50% of restaurants won't have beef on their shelves or on their menus, I should say from next week. Uh, what we're hearing from our members across the country is they're finding it very, very hard to get um, reliable uh, supply of beef from their distributors from next week onwards. And our appeal is to the farmers to lift the blockade. Uh, the agreement is in place and let the agreement work its way through for the next four to six weeks. And if they don't get what they're looking for, from the agreement, well, then they have every right to go back to the picket lines after that. Well, that's probably a, a sensible suggestion indeed, but whether the farmers will, will hear it or not is another issue. But it has been said that the situation is really at tipping point at this stage, that there's going to be irreversible uh, damage done to the to the industry right across the board. Uh, there's a headline this morning that uh, one of the major meat processors has postponed uh, indefinitely a 6.5 million beef plant investment. That's the Keypack Group and because of the protests. So when we see things like that happening, that is very concerning for your industry. It's very concerning for Ireland, uh, Ireland's economy. We're 44 days away from Brexit. Uh, the important thing here is that uh, the agreement is in place by seven farming organisations uh, and that everybody should live up to the agreement uh, in, its, in principle. And I think the farmers need to realise that you, under competition law you cannot discuss price at the, between, with the factories directly. That's against competition laws. I think everybody needs to realise that also. Um, the most important thing here is that uh, the farmers should get some sort of a deal that has helped them uh, with their business. Everybody is struggling at the moment, including our own industry as well, with a 50% increase in VAT rate and all that goes along with that. So we're all in this together. We all need to be reputation of Ireland internationally to the forefront and put on the green jersey and let's all work together ahead of Brexit uh, which is as I said is less than 44 days away. Indeed and obviously you're calling on the farmers to uh, observe the agreement. Yes absolutely Uh, as I said before seven farming organisations have signed up to the agreement and it's important that those that agreement is, 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 is worked through and if the farmers have every right uh, to go back to the picket lines if they don't get what is in within that agreement. I think the consumers are with the farmers. The restaurant industry is with the farmers on their on their calls and what they're looking for. But I think 
uh, I would be fearful that if people start to diversify away from beef and go to other substitute products like chicken or lamb or whatever, that they may not return to eating beef in the future. I'd be I don't think there's any that. danger of that in Ireland. I think we're confirmed yeah. beef eaters, so hopefully Ooh. this will we, we will see it on our restaurant shelves. Ooh, we are, and it, but if, if the percentages reduce, at least you know we want to maintain that, and we want to support Irish farmers, Irish beef into the future, and we will do so. All right, Adrian Commons, Chief Executive of Restaurants Association of Ireland. Thanks for joining us uh, with that this morning. Still to come on the programme, the waste disposal issue we talked about, the mattress collections. We'll have that story for you next. Orla Carmody on LMFM. Now, you might remember a couple of weeks back before when Louth County Council, as part of an anti-dumping initiative, held a mattress amnesty. They invited the public to the recycling centres on the Mel Road in Drogheda and the Newry Road in Dundalk at specific times to dispose of unwanted mattresses without any charge. They expected maybe a few hundred mattresses would be brought in and were hugely surprised when a massive 1,500 old mattresses were brought to the centres on the day and disposed of correctly, it has to be said. And joining us now to discuss this is Councillor Antoine Waters, Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil Councillors Conor uh, Keelan. You're welcome to the programme. Councillor Waters, if I can start with you first, what's your reaction to this? Were you surprised at the numbers? Is it good news for our uh, initiative in, in terms of our will to recycle? Good morning, Orla, and thanks for having me on. Um, yeah, look, it's, it's very positive. Um, like over the last couple of years, um, I've been highlighting cases of dumping around the area and we've been trying through the anti-dumping initiative to get funding to deal with, with these cases. We got funding for the Matters Amnesty and also for dealing with the tyre dumping, like covert cameras and stuff like that, which has been done. But I think the, the response has been it's been overwhelming, like 1,500 mattresses. It's like they're taking them out of circulation. I know uh, around the Midlight area and around our area as well, there's a lot of mattresses been dumped on the side of the road. So it's given people a chance to get rid of them. It's helping to deal with the demand with a van culture where people think they can just put the mattress into a bag of a van and then just forget about it. But as I always say, it's your responsibility to deal with it properly. And the council, through this initiative, have given people a chance to do it. And now, the success of the initiative is undisputed. But when you see 1,500 mattresses brought in, does that tell you that it's a cost-related issue in the sense that uh, normally it's €4 Euro into the the uh, recycling centres and about 15 or 20 euro per mattress. And the fact that you get this kind of inundation of mattresses being brought in, it, it really must be cost related. Oh, it is, of course. Yeah, it is. And like, I, I'm also noticing there's a lot of large scale dumping, such as like furniture. And I was mentioning aerosol cans and stuff that aren't been taken in by the recycling centres. So these are things that we are calling for at the meeting that should be looked at for next year's anti-dumping initiative to take these out of circulation because at the end of the day, the council are still ending up picking the tab of lifting them off the side of the road and disposing of them. So it's a way to try and get these out of circulation and combat the dumping in our, our beautiful area in North Loud especially. And Conor Keelan, uh, Councillor Conor Keelan and Finfold, to bring you in as well, what are you hearing on the ground from your constituents in terms of dumping? I know there are many uh, sort of black spots where dumping occurs. Are you still seeing a lot of it? Of course, Arla. This is, this is a prevalent issue across across all of Dundalk and indeed North Loud. And, and this is why we have to welcome uh, an issue like the uh, Mattress Amnesty. I would have called for this um, to be introduced over about um, two years ago when I first heard of it being introduced in uh, South Dublin County Council. And um, I always feel that when an, when an, when 
one initiative is being successfully rolled out in one local authority area that should be rolled out in a council area such as here in Loud. And I was very glad to hear that it was going to be rolled out in Loud this year as part of our, our anti-dumping uh, initiatives. Now, um, the, the success of it, um, as you can see, with 1,500 matters being deposited in one day in, in two towns, um, uh, stands alone in terms of the, the stats. Now, um, uh, I did call at the meeting there yesterday, there on, on Mulderotter, that um, we should see about expanding it for next year to uh, furniture. And uh, Anton did refer to uh, aerosols. Now, um, in Leash and Wexford, they've already expanded the initiative to incorporate uh, furniture for um, future years. And, uh, and is there any is there any um, initiative to include uh, white goods as well? Because again, they're the things that people find so difficult to dispose of. Yes, that is, that is a valid point. Um, uh, I haven't uh, thus far. I haven't heard of any local authority that, that is that is having um, uh, having an amnesty for white goods on um, any given day. I, as, as I as I mentioned, I have heard of those two local authorities have started an amnesty in these wax start an amnesty for. Um, uh, for ma- for furniture as well as uh, mattresses. And, um, I'm going to put the question uh, to you as well, Conor Keelan, that I put to uh, Anton Waters, and that is, it's cost-related, clearly. So maybe it's telling us that the cost of, of disposing of these items at the recycling centres is just too high for people. I mean, if it's a €20 Euro per mattress and €20 Euro for a chair, you know, it really begins to add up. Do we have to look at the costs of, of recycling in these uh, recycling centres to make it more attractive to people to use them? We have, we have seen over the last number of years that there's been an increase in flight tipping, okay? That is, anyone can, uh, can see that. And that, that is not to say that we don't excuse that behaviour. But, um, uh, uh, and, um, but, um, uh, there have been increases, uh, there have been increases at the recycling centres as well. And perhaps, um, um, uh, but um, I'm not going to condone people. Um, I'm not going to condone people in any way um, uh, fly-tipping um, in parts of uh, parts of beautiful areas um, or indeed um, uh, residential areas of North Loud and indeed the Dock and other urban areas. And back to you, Councillor Anton Waters. Um, what can we do in, in order to be uh, more vigilant about fly-tipping? How can we actually uh, work as, as communities to reduce it? Well, look, there's an example of out, our, out in Rock Marshall recently where there was a lot of furniture and all dumped and it's all got to do with just the public being more aware if they notice a suspicious car with maybe a trailer and some it's furniture on it. Like, they're, they're, it's late at night, it's very suspicious. So you need to be keeping an open eye and, and reporting anything suspicious to the council or to the guards. The, the little wardens are doing a great job trying to clamp down on it and they are working very hard to do that. But the public can give their help as well. And as I say, the main message should be it's your your litter, your rubbish. It's your responsibility that it's dealt with properly or if not, the fines are coming your way. I know that uh, we have seen uh, many uh, short videos of people about to fly tip or or dump and they're picked up by members of the public and posted on social media and it is very effective obviously in stopping people but at the same time I think people would be very uh, wary of approaching somebody they'd be uh, uh, wary of their personal safety. Of course, look, the guards are there and and the council to report it to them. I wouldn't be risking anyone or anyone shouldn't be risking their safety doing that but 
but look it's 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 vigilance is the main thing and and a, a cooperative approach with everyone involved at the end of the day it's our area we all live in it we want it to be a better place we don't want to be seeing these incidents every couple of days it's it's not what we want to see so we welcome people been vigilant and we also welcome these initiatives and hopefully in the next couple of years we can try and put more in place to help to reduce the amount of stuff that's So the done. council will definitely have more of these initiatives and will advertise them well so we can choose right. to take part Every in them. Every year we might, apply for them. Might say, um, yes, do come in there please, Colin Kearney. Uh, if, if I might say, as, uh, as we look at anti-dumping measures uh, in the future, I think in terms of future deterrence, and um, particularly as we are a border county, we need to look at possibly exploring the role of um, CCTV and also possibly drone technology. Um, uh, Anton has mentioned there, um, and indeed you've mentioned also, um, the role of, of people putting up uh, social media posts and also um, possibly fear of confronting people who are engaged in dumping. Um, some, uh, some local authorities are considering the role of, of rolling out drone technology as a way of um, catching people who are engaged in fly tipping. Well, I think you're absolutely right. I think using that technology could indeed be very powerful um, in in actually uh, keeping people safe when they do actually monitor this kind of activity. Uh, Councillor Anton Waters and Conor Keelan of Infall, thank you indeed for joining us uh, today on that issue. And before we wrap up the programme, Marie Kearns is back with us with a few more of your comments. Hello again, Marie. Hi, Orla. Yes, I'm back. And do you know what, Orla? It's GAA. It's not GA. Somebody took exception to, to me saying yes, GA. GA. <laughs> so straight on the text line, they won't let you away with a thing. I always say the GA. I'll have to correct myself. GAA. GAA. I stand corrected. Oh, we'll be on the front pages next. Um, and, uh, just on the topic about the separation of um, religion and education, uh, a listener text in to say, if you play sport in school, children get rewarded all the time. I don't see anything wrong with that. If you're a member of a sports team and you do well and you decide to maybe go, you know, have a, an outing to celebrate, of course, it's only going to be children on the team. Why should it be any different for religion if children are in a choir or something like that, says this listener? Oh, well, that's a good point. Yeah, but I think we were saying it's isolating some child who's not able to turn up for whatever reason and actually making them feel that they're being left out or whatever. It's all about the child's feelings. Pod phoned in on... Uh, the public services card and says Fine Gael is now a party who are more interested in city problems than in the livelihood of farmers and country people. Sorry, this isn't about the card. This is about farmers. Uh, A change at the top is needed and Pod feels that Simon Coveney would be a much better and even handed leader and he feels that he doesn't have his head in the clouds like our Leo. Does Leo have his head in the clouds? Well, I don't know about that's that. that's obviously a personal opinion. <laughs> it sure is. But we have some response um, to the interview with Minister Regina Doherty. Uh, Pat agrees that uh, the card is a good idea, agrees with the Minister, says that he feels it saves on filling out of forms for lots of different bodies and that uh, it makes a lot of sense to him. So there you go. Whereas Chris says, Regina Doherty reminds him of Boris Johnson. She says 9 out of 10 like the car change and Chris doesn't know anybody who likes it. So there you go. <laughs> All right, Marie Kieran, thank you indeed for that and keep those calls and texts coming. That's where we're going to have to leave it for today. My thanks to Marie, who was also producing today as well as contributing. Uh, Paul McKenna on sound and I'll be back with you all going well at 9.15 tomorrow morning. Thanks for your company and look forward to meeting you again then on the radio.
The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.